0: Before I start the show, I just wanted to say that it is two weeks until JordanCon. If you will be there, come and say hi. I will be on a panel Sunday afternoon discussing Season 2 of The Wheel of Time on Prime with Joe from Takaran Riyadh and Jim from Fantasy for the Ages and a guy named Omar, and I don't actually know where Omar is from, sorry Omar if you ever hear this. I have stickers and magnets and a single t-shirt that is a unisex large so it runs a bit small. First come, first serve if you want a Podcast of the Dragon shirt, it is free. All I ask is you wear it at the con and tell people you love me, or like me well enough and enjoy my show, or think I'm a total asshole but appreciate the content that I produce. Anyway, I look forward to seeing everyone, and now on to the episode. stone won't fall until the Podcast of the Dragon comes to your device. Hey, everybody. My name is Morgan. Who the hell is this grey warder on Twitter and Discord? Welcome to the 32nd episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Robert Jordan could have called Book 4 Heron Rising but if he had, I suspect it would be a lot fewer people's favorite of this series. Today, I begin my exploration of our burly blacksmith subplot and look at his soft and self-sacrificing side. That's a lot of S's. For all that, in many ways, The Shadow Rising is an intimate study of Rand at the beginning of his relationship with the Aiel and the start of our understanding of Aiel culture, it cannot be ignored that nearly 30% of the word count belongs to Perrin. R.J. takes Perrin, still warm to use some Perrin metaphors, from all the forging that he goes through in the last book, and puts him through this final quenching to get him placed both geographically and psychologically where he needs to be for the next part of his arc in the series. And as such, he puts Perrin through a massive amount of growth and development in this book. Our other characters are moved along, sometimes with significant, even radical changes, but Perrin is the one who gets a story. Book four is many things, but a large part of it is the tale of Perrin, through the pressure of duty, circumstance, and others' expectations, becoming who the pattern needs him to be. Before I go further, I'm going to try to give as thorough a recap of the time we spent with Perrin in this book as I can, without getting bogged down too much with all of the details, because there are a lot of details. We start out in Chapter 2, where he and Fail are hanging out in his room. Fail finds chilling in the stone to be boring, stressful, and dangerous. When the cock crows and the axe attacks, it at least gets a little bit more interesting, both of them assume that what we later learn is a bubble of evil is Rand channeling and accidentally or crazily on purpose trying to kill them, so they decide to go and confront him. On the way, they pass Beryl Lane coming from Rand's apartments, smelling like she walked through the perfume gauntlet at the mall and got liberally spritzed with terror by Calvin Klein. Fayel leaves Perrin to go on alone. In Rand's room, he sees that his ginger bestie also had an unfortunate experience with what they learned from Moraine as the bubble of evil, an experience that didn't go nearly as well as parents did, and while Rand survived, remaining alive depends on parents' quick first aid measures and the maidens running to get the Aes Sedai. Three days pass, and then there's the Trolloc attack, and that same night he hears the rumor about white cloaks in the two rivers. He packs his stuff to go home, intending to leave without his girlfriend, a plan that she foils by tricking Loyal once Perrin tells her that his plan is to use the ways so that a journey of many weeks will only take a couple of days. A great deal of stubborn, toxic childishness ensues that makes me want to tear out my hair and light things on fire and smother them both. Gall, the Aielman in the cage, volunteers to accompany our burly blacksmith, and Bane and Shi'ad choose to go with Fayil, because according to Gall, the argument between her and Parent fascinates them. I guess his presumption to tell her where she can and cannot go, or his trying to protect her, or whatever the fuck, is so alien to Aiel culture that they just have to wait and see how it pans out. As the five humans and one Ogier are in the stables getting ready to leave, the stone rocks because Rand has driven Kalandor into the heart and Perrin gallops his horse feeling like he's being sucked by a whirlpool thanks to Ran's Taviran tugging. Giordo in Discord asked me after my Matt episode, episode 30, what allows Rand's Taviran pull on Perrin to fail, and my response was logic and strength of will slash purpose. Perrin has thought his way past what connects him to Rand, and his purpose is so strong that even though the pull of Tavirin to Tavirin is tremendous, he is able to break free in a way that Matt, who is too irresolute, just can't. Anyway, the six of them travel in two distinct parties through the ways for about two days. At the end of the journey, they reach the waygate at Manethrin and cross paths with Trollocs and a Emerdral. A fight ensues, and most of the party end up wounded in some way. The black wind comes, and they are able to back out of the waygate, and Loyal locks it by putting both of the Aventasora leaves on the outside. Perrin reaches out for wolves and can't find any, and he also notices the two hawks that are killed down the valley, one by an arrow and one by ravens. The combination of shadow spawn, no wolves, someone killing hawks where there's no need to kill them, ravens, and the fact that he's coming home to White Cloaks lets him know that things aren't right in the two rivers. So he goes into the wolf dream to do some scouting, where he still cannot find any wolves, and when he finally does, it's a dead one that is being skinned by someone that Hopper tells him is called Slayer. He chases this guy until he disappears near the Tower of Genji, where Hopper finally shows up and is like, hey, yo, stop, Slayer can kill, and we finally get our first dialogue with Birgitta, who's been peeping around, looking at everybody. And when Perrin wakes up, he tells Gall that things may be worse in the two rivers than he thought, to which Gall sagely replies, things often are, it is the way of life. Next day, they begin to travel to Emmons Field. On the way, they stop by Rand's farm and see that it has been burned down. Perrin and Gaul go on alone in the morning and reach the Winespring Inn, where the Alvirs let him know that his family has died, or more truthfully been murdered by Trollocs, or so they think. Perrin refuses the mayor and his wife's insistence that he needs to leave, so Mistress Alvir takes him to the Aes Sedai that she and the rest of the women's circle have been hiding. Tam Althor and Abel Cawthon show up and Perrin lets them know that he intends to go up to the white cloak camp at Watch Hill and free the Luhans and Abel's wife and daughters who are being held captive. The following day, he, Tam, Abel, Fail, Varen, and her warder head out for Watch Hill. They stop for lunch at the Alcine farm, where Perrin tells all of these people that they should take their families and their animals and go to Emmons Field, because all of the farms are easy prey for the Trollocs that are attacking out in the countryside. While they're talking, this dude named Lord Luke shows up, a hunter for the horn that Perrin thinks is a real douchebag. When it's time to go, Perrin leaves with a handful of young men from the farm. He continues warning farms as he goes on to watch Hill and also collecting people. At the White Cloak camp, Perrin, Fael, Galbane, and Chiad rescue the Luhans and the Cawthons, and he sends a bunch of people back to Emmons Field, including Fail, and takes a group of the young men to go hunt Trollocs. The next time we see him is six days later, he's at his family's farm visiting their graves. Fa'iel shows up with Lord Luke and tells him that everybody and their grandmother has come to Emmons field and the village is protecting itself. Gull and the maidens come and tell him that some Trollocs are heading their way through the Waterwood so Perrin prepares an ambush, but somehow the Shadowspawn get behind them. During the attack, Perrin is shot in the side with a huge arrow and 27 Two Rivers men are killed. And the only reason that Perrin doesn't die is that Alana sends her warder looking for him, and said warder beheads the Fae that is about to kill him. The survivors make their way through the woods and come across the wagons of the Tinkers, who welcome them and tend their wounds. Perrin sleeps for the night in Rayan and Isla's wagon. He goes into the wolf dream and does some scouting and sees all indications that there are fuck-tons of trolls. He scouts all the way up to the Waygate and learns that despite the fact that Loyal locked it, it's open again. He's almost killed by Slayer, but Perrin learns from his mistake in the Waterwood and steps out of the Wolf Dream. In the morning, he tries to get the Tinkers to come to Ammon's Field, but they refuse. He and the Two Rivers Lads make their way home, and he's very close to death when Alana heals him of the arrow. He tells Loyal about the Waygate being unlocked, and when he wakes in the morning, he finds out that the Ogier and Gall have left to go take care of it. That same day, the village comes under its first attack. The murderers send about 500 Trollocs against them to check their defenses, which hold well. Perrin sits on his horse and feels like an idiot while people ask him stupid questions that they know the answers to perfectly well. Shortly after the attack, the Tinkers show up. Their caravan was attacked during the night, and most of them were killed. The Two Rivers Folk welcome them in, and while Perrin is eating lunch... Aram picks up the sword, and Perrin defends his right to use it, sending him to Tam Althor to learn. Then the White Cloaks show up, let them know that Terran Ferry has been wiped off the map, get everybody all spun up, and Perrin, because he doesn't want the Two Rivers people to fight them, and Dane Bornhold is drunk and crazy and insisting on arresting them, basically tells them that they should stay in the village and help defend it, because if they try to get back to Watch Hill, they'll probably all be killed, since there are tons of Trollocs and they need to stay and help with the defenses. Next time we see him, it's been about seven days after that. Supplies are low, and there have been a ton of attacks. There's fighting at the stakes most times. It's not a good scene. One of Perrin's men tells him that somebody's brought in a wounded guy who just tells him, Are you Perrin? GoldenEyes, we're coming. And then he dies. Gaul and Loyal return, and they say, Hey, things are really bad. There's thousands of Trollocs. We locked the Waygate, though, and nobody's going to get it open again without the Talisman of Growing. Perrin goes to bed and goes into the World of Dreams to scout and check on what Loyal says and sees that, yeah, he's correct, we're kind of fucked. And also that Watch Hill and Devon Rise fortifications aren't nearly as good as Emmon's Field, so he suspects that the Trollocs will just destroy Emmon's Field and then move on to the other villages at their leisure. And he also sees that the Terran Ferry is still there, so people can get out. Slayer attacks him, and they have a game of cat and mouse that Perrin wins, but not totally, because the ravens warn Slayer at the last minute, and so his arrow misses his heart. He wakes up and learns that Lord Luke mysteriously came running from the inn, holding his chest. He talks to Fa'iel and asks her to go to Camelin and ask Queen Morgase for soldiers, and Fa'iel says, okay, but you gotta marry me. Then there's a big battle and Devon Wright attacks from the south and Fayil brings the people back from Watch Hill and hooray, good triumphs. It's a pretty good, action-packed story and nearly 110,000 words, so long enough to be its own novel. And even more words if you include the point of use from Dane Bornhold, which I feel like is fair to do so considering that his story really is like hooked on to Perrin's. You know, he's not really significant outside of Perrin. And I think RJ did it not just because he had so much to say about Perrin and so far for him to go, but he had so much growth for the two rivers to go through, and he wanted them to grow together. He felt like Perrin was the best one to prepare the people from home, the friends and the family and the loved ones. Perrin was the Tavirin who would, as Moraine says... "'steal them for the long night coming.'" Because Manetherin's blood can't just sit out the last battle, not after we heard that badass story in Book 1. So, Chapter 2 starts from Perrin's point of view before the cock crows and the axe attacks him. We get some simple interactions between him and Fai'il that do character development and relationship development and also give us a bit of RJ's inevitable recap— Which, hopefully, you know, isn't as exhausting as the recap that I just did. And it gives us a timeline to let us know where we are compared to where we left off. It says, He scratched his two-week growth of beard irritably. It was even curlier than the hair on his head. It was also hot. For the hundredth time, he thought of shaving. It suits you, Fayil said suddenly, stopping in her tracks. Uncomfortably, he shrugged shoulders heavy from long hours working at a forge. She did that sometimes, seemed to know what he was thinking. It itches, he muttered, and wished he had spoken more forcefully. It was his beard. He could shave it off any time he wanted. She studied him, her head tilted to one side. Her bold nose and high cheekbones made it seem a fierce study, a contrast to the soft voice in which she said, It looks right on you. Heron sighed and shrugged again. She had not asked him to keep the beard, and she would not, yet he knew he was going to put off shaving again. So I've referenced Perrin's beard when discussing the story's beginning timeline in several of the episodes for book four, because it's very useful. It's honestly one of the most awesome and understated devices I can think of for marking time that RJ uses. Facial hair is just something that happens. There's nothing contrived about it. There's no need for a stilted conversation to bring it up, or any kind of story to explain it, or some minor plot contrivance. All we need to do is just assume that at the end of book three, he rescues Fayil from the world of dreams, and presumably within the next day, they move into the stone and he stops shaving. And that makes sense. She stops being Zareen to him and becomes Fayil, and he stops being clean-shaven and becomes scruffy. And that's how we know that they've all been in the Stone of Tear for 20 days, two Randland weeks. Now I'm going to actually look at the beard for its symbolism, because I'm seeing it as symbolic for Lord Perrin. His beard is uncomfortable, and he doesn't actually like it very much, and he could shrug it off and shave it because it's his beard and he doesn't care for it, but Fayil holds him to it. She thinks he should have it, just as she reminds him of his responsibilities to people when he wants to shrug those off, and she educates him on the duties of a lord, a thing that even though he hates it and finds it uncomfortable, she thinks it suits him. And while she may not have seen that when she was riding around with this odd farm boy on this very bizarre adventure in Book 3, and it's not obvious when she's starting out with him in the Stone of Tear, as she travels with him and the situation in the Two Rivers unfolds, she begins to see it more and more. The morning after Perrin is healed from the Trolloc arrow in his side, after the ambush in the Waterwood, Emmonsfield is attacked for the first time. Before the main assault, a single trolloc attacks a party of men outside the sharpened hedge stakes. They make it back inside, and the wounded are healed by the Aes Sedai. And it says, From out of the trees, the two Aiel women appeared, running, heads shufa-wrapped and veiled, so he could not tell which was which. They slowed to snake between the sharp-pointed stakes, then slipped deathly through the crowd, people moving out of their way as much as possible in that press, By the time they reached Fai'il, they had unveiled, and she leaned down to listen. "'Perhaps five hundred Trollocs,' Bane told her, "'probably no more than a mile or two behind us.' Her voice was level, but her dark blue eyes sparkled with eagerness. So did Chi'ad's grey. "'As I expected,' Thomas said calmly. "'That one likely wandered off from the larger body, hoping to find a meal. "'The rest will be coming soon, I think.' The maidens nodded. Perrin gestured in consternation at the jam of people. "'They shouldn't be out here, then. "'Why haven't you cleared them away?' It was Yvonne, bringing his Grey into the gathering, who answered, "'Your people do not seem to want to listen to outsiders, not when they can watch Aes die. I would suggest you see what you can do.' Perrin was sure they could have imposed some sort of order had they really tried. Varin and Alana surely could have. So why did they wait and leave it to me if they expected Trollocs? It would have been easy to put it down to de Easy "'Easy and foolish.' Yvonne and Thomas were not going to let Trollocs kill them, or Varin or Alana, while waiting for a Taviran to tell them what to do. The Aes I were maneuvering him, risking everyone, maybe even themselves, but to what possible end? He met Fai'il's eyes, and she nodded slightly, as if she knew what he was thinking. He had no time to try figuring it out now. Scanning the crowd, he spotted Bran Alvir putting his head together with Tam Althor and Abel Cawthon. The mayor had a long spear on his shoulder and a dented old round steel cap on his head. A leather jerkin sewn all over with steel discs strained around his bulk. All three men looked up when Perrin pushed Stepper through the crowd to them. Bane says Trollocs are heading this way and the warders think we may be attacked soon. He had to shout because of the incessant drone of voices. Some of the nearer folk heard and fell silent. Quiet spread on ripples of Trolloc and attack. Brandt blinked. Yes, it had to come, didn't it? Yes, well, we know what to do. He should have looked comic with his jerkin ready to pop its seams and his steel cap wobbling when he nodded, but he only looked determined. Raising his voice, he announced, Perrin says the Trollocs will be here soon. You all know your places. Hurry now, hurry. The crowd stirred and flowed, women herding children back toward the houses, men milling every which way. Confusion seemed to grow more rather than less. I'll see to getting the shepherds in, Abel told Perrin and dove into the throng. Sen Bui pushed past in the moil, using a halberd to herd sour-faced Harry Coplin and Harry's brother Daryl, and old Billy Conker who staggered as if already full of ale this morning, which he probably was. Of the three, Billy carried his spear most as if he meant to use it. Sen touched his forehead to Perrin in a sort of salute. A number of the men did. It made him uncomfortable. Dan'l and the other lads were one thing, but these men were half again his age and more. You were doing fine, Fahil said. "I wish I knew what Varen and Alana were up to," he muttered, "and I don't mean right now." Two of the catapults the warders had had built stood at this end of the village, squarish things taller than a man, all heavy timbers and thick, twisted ropes. From their horses, Yvonne and Thomas were overseeing the stout wooden beams being winched down. The two Isidai were more interested in the big field stones, fifteen or twenty pounds each, being loaded in cups on the end of those arms. "They mean you to be a leader," Vaille replied quietly. It is what you were born for, I think. The beard that Perrin grows for her looks as natural on him as leadership begins to in Fail's eyes, but she has to take on the task of nudging him and reminding him. Fail is the plot device that holds Perrin to his fate, along with his own sense of duty, and despite Fail's flaws and her volatility and her occasional toxicity, she is a much gentler device than the one that, say, holds Matt to his fate. Poor Perrin believed that he had accepted his fate. He thought he had accepted it and what it entailed. In Chapter 2, Before the Bubble of Evil Attacks, the conversation that he and Fa'iel are having is about leaving. It says, After a moment, she said, The Lord Dragon seems to have lost interest in you. All his time is taken by the High Lords now. The itch between his shoulders worsened. He knew what was troubling her now. He tried to make his voice light. The Lord Dragon? You sound like a Terran. His name is Rand. He's your friend, Paranaibara, not mine, if a man like that has friends. She drew a deep breath and went on in a more moderate tone. I've been thinking about leaving the stone, leaving Tyr. I don't think Moraine would try to stop me. News of of Rand has been leaving the city for two weeks now. She can't think to keep him secret any longer. He only just sobbed another sigh. I don't think she will either. If anything, I think she considers you a complication. She will probably give you money to see you on your way. And a little further, it says, I've been talking to Bane and Chi, at Perrin. That was no surprise. She spent considerable time with the Aiel women. The friendship made some trouble for her, but she seemed to like the Aiel women as much as she despised the stone's Terran noblewomen, but he saw no connection to what they were talking about, and he said so. They say Moraine sometimes asks where you are, or Matt. Don't you see? She would not have to do that if she could watch you with the power." Watch me with the power, he said faintly. He had never even considered that. She cannot. Come with me, Perrin. We can be twenty miles across the river before she misses us. I can't, he said miserably. He tried diverting her with a kiss, but she leaped to her feet and backed away so fast he nearly fell on his face. There was no point going after her. She had her arms crossed beneath her breast like a barrier. Don't tell me you are that afraid of her. I know she is Aes and she has all of you dancing when she twitches the strings. Perhaps she has the... Rand, so tight he cannot get loose, and the light knows Egwene and Elaine and even Nine Eve don't want to, but you can break her cords if you try. It has nothing to do with Moraine. It's what I have to do. I. She cut him short. Don't you dare hand me any of that hairy-chested drivel about a man having to do his duty. I know duty as well as you, and you have no duty here. You may be Taviran, even if I don't see it, but he is the dragon reborn, not you. Will you listen, he shouted, glaring, and she jumped. He had never shouted at her before, not like that. She raised her chin and shifted her shoulders, but she did not say anything. He went on, "'I think I am part of Rand's destiny somehow. Matt, too. I think he can't do what he has to unless we do our part as well. That is the duty. How can I walk away if it might mean Rand will fail?' "'Might?' There was a hint of demand in her voice, but only a hint. He wondered if he could make himself shout at her more often." "'Did Moraine tell you this, Perrin?' "'You should know by now to listen closely to what an Aes Sedai says.' "'I worked it out for myself. "'I think Tavirin are pulled toward each other. "'Or maybe Rand pulls us, Matt and me both. "'He's supposed to be the strongest Tavirin since Ardor Hawkwing, "'maybe since the Breaking. "'Matt won't even admit he's Tavirin, "'but however he tries to get away, he always ends up drawn back to Rand. "'Loyal says he has never heard of three Tavirin, "'all the same age and all from the same place. "'Fayel sniffed loudly.' Loyal does not know everything. He isn't very old for an ogre, And a little bit further, it says, He knows more than you or I do. He believes maybe I have the right of it, and so does Moraine. No, I haven't asked her, but why else does she keep a watch on me? Did you think she wanted me to make her a kitchen knife? So, beyond this showing that Perrin has decent critical thinking skills... He hears the news that Moraine is watching him and immediately deduces that it's because she thinks that he and Rand are tied together and that he is necessary for Rand to be able to do what he has to do, we see that Perrin understands what being Tavirin means to a point. But he thinks his Tavirin is just sort of as an auxiliary to Rand, not that he has his own path that will lead him to prominence and greatness. Perrin is a deeply self-conscious person, and for him, prominence and greatness sounds terrible. Lanfear mentions the glory to him in the last book when she's creeping on him in the world of dreams, and he immediately yanks the shiny gold lion's head helmet off his head and says, this isn't mine. He's good at being dutiful in a support role. That's his comfort zone. Moraine does ask after him when she checks up on Matt, but we get her point of view in chapter 21, as she, Egwene, Matt, and the nobles are waiting in the heart of the stone for Rand. Egwene is wondering aloud where Perrin is, and then she answers herself with, Perhaps he is with Fail, Egwene said. He won't have run away, Moraine. Perrin has a strong sense of duty. Almost as strong as a warder's, Moraine knew, which is why she did not keep eyes and ears on him as she tried to with Matt. Fael has been trying to talk him into leaving, girl. Quite possibly he was with her. He usually was. Do not look so surprised. They often talk and argue where they can be overheard. I'm not surprised you know, Egwene said dryly, only that Fahil would try to talk him out of doing what he knows he has to do. Perhaps she does not believe it as he does. So Moraine isn't going to waste agents to watch someone who she knows is so dutiful and absolutely isn't going to go anywhere. She occasionally asks if she comes across people, Hey, have you seen him? Just to double check, because Moraine is the type of person who is never not going to double check but she's not going to actually keep eyes and ears on him because she understands Perrin and his sense of duty. He's sitting in the stone right now. He's in a holding pattern, which is something that RJ puts Perrin through a lot in this series. And while it's unfortunate because it can be tedious, it also makes sense for his character. Perrin isn't as complicated as a lot of the other characters, which means his characterization doesn't require the intricacies that a lot of the others do to get where they need to be. But he is a main character and requires main character page time. And so Perrin spends a lot of time in holding patterns. And he's doing that now, ignoring his girlfriend's suggestions to leave. But when she brings it up, encouraging her to go. Because it's not safe near him, as the flying axe goes on to prove. Perrin would love to be with Faiyil, but he's a very practical person. And he knows what his life looks like right now. He knows he has to stay near Rand. And that she will be safer elsewhere. And Perrin is a very self sacrificing person, and so, however much he wants to be with her, he encourages her to go to protect her. Fiel is not particularly interested in being protected, and she wants to protect him at least as much as he wants to protect her, and she wants to get the fuck out. Rand has not, in any of the time that she has seen, been seeking Perrin out or treating him very much as an advisor. They've maybe talked in passing a little bit, but he is taken up with the High Lords. So, as far as she can tell, he's not looking to hold on to Perrin. And to her, it's insane to stay here. Why would you stay near a male channeler? The events of the last book have made her want to nope the fuck out of this experience. Sure, she left Saldaya seeking adventure, wanting to hunt the horn and put her name in the stories, but not with this shit. This is the type of danger that you can't fight if you can't channel, and I think that sometimes, because we're so used to our main POV characters either being able to channel or having other special powers, we forget that a character like Figil doesn't have any of that, and so it's logical for her to want to nope the fuck out of this situation. But she's not going to leave without Perrin. And yeah, she's only known him for two months, and so the whole wanting to be with him forever and ever is very young love and kind of short-sighted. But two months into the relationship with my wife, I would not have left her side, particularly not in a situation so dangerous. I would have considered our relationship to be provisional or probationary love, where you are getting to know each other more and more and seeing if the person is who you need them to be. And if, as you get to know them, it becomes clear that they aren't, then you break up. Or, sadly often, people don't. They stay together and their relationships are toxic as fuck. But in such dire circumstances, if my wife were in a situation like that, I would have been right or die. So I get where she's coming from. Perrin, Is a realist. He has to stay near Rand, but it's dangerous. And after the bubble of evil attacks, he's determined. He's got to find something to get Fayil away. And he figures that the best choice to make that happen is to find something interesting that will lure her to go off elsewhere, because while Perrin isn't stupid, sometimes she's not very bright nothing will make her fuck off without him and his thinking that finding a rumor of adventure or something will trigger an ooh shiny reaction in her that will induce her to leave assigns a level of childishness to her that while she does act incredibly childishly in the beginning part of this book is not the way that she normally operates it shows desperation on his part but also an underestimation of her feelings for him Which is typical Perrin. He is the type of person to be shocked that someone would like him so much. So yeah, he's desperate, but also he's kind of dumb. Anyway, from Matt's point of view, after the Trollocs attack, when he's sitting in the tavern brooding, and then he hears about the White Cloaks and the Two Rivers, it says, He ran all the way to Perrin's room and flung open the door, barely noticing the splintered split in the wood. Perrin's saddlebags lay on the bed, and Perrin was stuffing shirts and stockings into them. There was only one candle lit, but he did not seem to notice the gloom. "'You've heard, then,' Matt said. Perrin went on with what he was doing. "'About home?' "'Yes. I went down to sniff out a rumor for Fael. After tonight, more than ever, I have to get her." The growl, deep in his throat, made Matt's hackles rise. It sounded like an angry wolf. No matter. I heard. Maybe this will do as well.' "'As well as what?' Matt wondered." "'You believe it?' For a moment, Perrin looked up. His eyes gathered the light of the candle, shining a burnished golden yellow. "'There doesn't seem to be much doubt to me. "'It's all too close to the truth.' Matt shifted uncomfortably. "'Does Rand know?' Perrin only nodded and went back to his packing. "'Well, what does he say?' Perrin paused, staring at the folded cloak in his hands. He started muttering to himself. "'He said he'd do it. "'He said he would. "'I should have believed him. "'Like that. "'It made no sense.' Then he grabbed me by the collar and said he had to do what they don't expect. He wanted me to understand, but I'm not certain he does himself. He didn't seem to care whether I leave or stay. No, I take that back. I think he was relieved I'm leaving. Boil it down and he's not going to do anything, Matt said. Light, with Kalindor, he could blast a thousand white cloaks. You saw what he did to those bloody Trollocs. You're going, are you? Back to the two rivers? Alone? Unless you were coming too. Parents stuffed the cloak into the saddlebags. Are you? And a little bit further it says, "'You don't have to,' Perrin said quietly. "'Nothing I heard mentioned you, only Rand and me.' "'Burn me, I will go-. He could not say it. Thinking of going was easy enough, but saying he would? His throat tightened up to strangle the words. "'Is it easy for you, Perrin? "'Going, I mean? "'Don't you feel anything, trying to hold you back, "'telling you reasons you shouldn't go? "'A hundred of them, Matt. "'But I know it comes down to Rand and Tavirin. "'You won't admit that, will you?' A hundred reasons to stay, but the one reason to go outweighs them. The white cloaks are in the two rivers and they'll hurt people trying to find me. I can stop it if I go. So Matt's wondering, as well as what? This will do as well. Like Perrin sniffing out a rumor for Fael, but this will do as well. Perrin couldn't find a rumor to lure her off, but she's not going to stay once he's gone. He just has to keep her from going with him. And I think one of the reasons why... Even though Pad and Fane gave all three of the Tavirans' names to the White Cloaks, you don't hear about Matt. You know, nothing that Heron hears mentions Matt and Matt doesn't hear anything is because there's nothing to make Matt distinct. You know, the Dragon Reborn is distinct. A Dark Friend with Yellow Eyes is distinct. But nothing about Matt Coffin, at least at this point, is distinct. How must it have felt to hear? Perrin's sitting in the tavern and he's trying to find rumors to lure his girlfriend away which has been a thankless task that he has been engaged in for the last three days, one that's been putting a strain on his relationship because he's been being secretive about it. He and Fayyul were spending all of their time together, and suddenly he's disappearing for hours. It says from Perrin's POV during the Relay Race paragraphs in Chapter 9, the chapter called Decisions, he could not tell her where he was spending his time either, because she would inevitably ask why. She knew he was not mad to enjoy lolling about taverns. He had never been good at lying, so he began to put her off as best he could, and she began to give him long, silent, slanted looks. All he could do was redouble his efforts to find a tail to lure her away. He had to send her away from him before he got her killed. He had to. So, he's feeling miserable and desperate. And while it may be sexist for him to try to take away her agency by manipulating her into leaving him, She came pretty close to dying when the axe attacked him, so I don't blame him for that. Even as a woman who doesn't appreciate men trying to tell me what to do, or what danger I can or cannot be in, I can sympathize with his situation and understand the choice that he makes. And then it gets more dire because there's the Trolloc attack. And then he hears about White Cloaks in the two rivers, looking for the dragon reborn and a dark friend with yellow eyes. I'm assuming he must have found out in a similar way to Matt, his sharp ears picking up whispers through the tavern. Or maybe he was talking to someone who took note of his eyes and was like, Whoa! Yellow eyes! Trippy! I just heard a rumor about White Close and the Two Rivers looking for a dark friend with yellow eyes. I thought it was bullshit. Who ever heard of yellow eyes? Go figure. At the start of The Shadow Rising, Perrin is incredibly self-conscious about his golden eyes. As he and Fai'il are going to confront Rand after the bubble of evil because they assume that Rand is behind it, and so Perrin wants to go say to him, Hey, what the fuck? Why did you try to kill me? And they're walking down the hall along to the antechamber outside Rand's room. It says, Only one lamp in three or four was lit. In the dim stretches between their tall stands, shadows blurred the hanging tapestries and obscured the occasional chest against the wall. For any eyes but Perrin's, they did. His eyes glowed like burnished gold in those murky lengths of hall. He walked quickly from lamp to lamp and kept his gaze down unless he was in full light. Most people in the stone knew about his strangely colored eyes, one way or another. None of them mentioned it, of course. Even Fahil seemed to assume the color was part of his association with an Aes eye something that simply was, to be accepted but never explained. Even so, a prickling always ran across his back whenever he realized that a stranger had seen his eyes shining in the dark. When they held their tongues, the silence only emphasized his apartness. So we get multiple mentions before Perrin learns that he was too late getting to the Two Rivers and that his family has died of him being concerned about his eyes and how self-conscious that he is about him. You know, he literally avoids being in low light or makes sure that he kind of hides his eyes while he's in low light. Anything to keep them from being extra and specially noticeable because he's that concerned about it. Or how much he appreciates people who don't make him feel self-conscious about them. After Loyal agrees to take him to the two rivers via the ways, and there's been the gigantic fuck row with Fai'il and the whole childish fallout of what she does to manipulate Loyal to be able to go along, Perrin leaves his room in a state of frustration and despair, and it says, When he turned to go, one of the A'il was approaching, a tall man with reddish hair and green eyes who could have been Rand's older cousin, or maybe a young uncle. He knew the man and liked him, if only because Gall had never given even a flicker of notice to his yellow eyes. And I feel like Gall should have other qualities that make him likable as well. I, I find that interesting. It's kind of like either Perrin has like really low standards, like Gall's an utter piece of shit, but the fact that he doesn't make any kind of, you know, flicker about his eyes makes him totally worthwhile. Or I, I just find that an interesting way of wording something, or it's just the fact that Gaul doesn't even give a shit about his eyes makes Perrin value him so much that even though he has all of these other qualities, Perrin doesn't even notice it. Like, he's so self-conscious about his eyes that Jordan words it that way because that's the thing that Perrin likes the most about Gaul, is that Gaul feels safe. And later on, When they get out of the way gate, Perrin mentions to Gaul, Hey, you know, none of you, Aiel, have ever said anything about my eyes, and Gaul's like, the world's ending. Who fucking cares? You know, he's much more philosophical about it, but he's basically like, in the face of everything else that's going on, what does the color of someone's eyes matter? Perrin's choice to go home and take responsibility for the situation in the Two Rivers is a perfect illustration of how little communication there is between people in RJ's world. Rand is relieved because he believes Perrin is going home to actually help. He has this fervent wish in his head as he's going to Roydean of help them, Perrin, help them, because I can't, assuming that he's going home to do that. Perrin is a dumbass and figures that giving himself up so that the White Cloaks can hang him is the best choice if Rand isn't actually going to send combatants to fight the White Cloaks or come himself to zap them with Kalindor. And Perrin takes on this self-sacrifice without complaint. In fact, almost gladly, because two people died from his carelessness. And should the White Cloaks find other Ibaras, and there are plenty of them to find, more people will be victims to his loss of control. They will be the collateral victims of his acts. It's secondary targets. And so for Perrin, it's best for him just that he die. And so, because that's his plan, he chooses to drive Fayil away, because there's no role for her to play there, and therefore she has to go. So, Matt leaves Perrin packing, and shortly after, Barrel comes in to engage in the first of many acts of sexual harassment against him, because she's kind of terrible. And while that is going on, Fayil walks in and says, Perrin, I went into the city looking for you, and I heard a rumor... She stopped, stock still, her eyes hard on Berylaine. The first ignored her. Stepping close to Perrin, she ran a hand up his arm, across his shoulder. For an instant, he thought she meant to try pulling his head down for a kiss. She certainly lifted her face as if for one, but she only trailed her hand along the side of his neck in a quick caress and stepped back. It was over and done before he could move to stop her. "'Remember,' she said softly, as if they were alone. "'I always get what I want.' And she swept past Fahil and out of the room. He waited for an explosion from Fayil, but she glanced at his stuffed saddlebags on the bed and said, "'I see you've heard the rumor already. It is only a rumor, Perrin.' Yellow eyes make it more than that. She should have been erupting like a bundle of dry twigs tossed on a fire. Why was she so cool?' "'Very well. Moraine is the next problem, then. Will she try to stop you?' "'Not if she doesn't, know. If she tries, I will go anyway. I have family and friends, Fayil. I won't leave them to White Cloaks.' but I hope to keep it from her until I am well out of the city. Even her eyes were calm, like dark pools in the forest. It made his hackles rise. But it had to take weeks for that rumor to reach Tyr, and it will take weeks more to ride to the two rivers. The white cloaks could be gone by then. Well, I've been wanting you to leave here. I should not complain. I just want you to know what to expect. And parents like, Nah, it's not going to take weeks because I'm going to go by the ways. And she's like, That's fucking nuts. And he tells her, Nah, I've done it before. "'Well,' she said, rubbing her hands together briskly. "'Well, I wanted adventure, and this is certainly it. "'Leaving the Stone of Tear and the Dragon Reborn, "'traveling the ways to fight White Cloaks. "'I wonder whether we can persuade Tom Marilyn to come along. "'If we cannot have a bard, a glee man will do. "'He could compose the story, and you and I the heart of it. "'No Dragon Reborn or Aes Sedai about to swallow up the tale. "'When do we leave? In the morning?' "'He took a deep breath to steady his voice. "'I will be going alone, Fael, just loyal in me.' We will need a pack horse, she said, as if he had not spoken. Two, I think. The ways are dark. We will need lanterns and plenty of oil. You're two rivers, people. Farmers? Will they fight white cloaks? Fail, I said. I heard what you said, she snapped. Shadows gave her a dangerous look with her tilted eyes and high cheekbones. I heard, and it makes no sense. What if these farmers won't fight, or don't know how? Who is going to teach them? You, alone? I will do what has to be done, he said patiently, without you. And, of course, that pisses her off, and then they fight, and she throws Berylaine in his face, but only because she's fucking pissed at him. And then he pretends to be into Lane because he figures Fayil will hate him, and that'll finally make her fuck off and go away, and it's really childish. But her anger is super understandable, and his desire to protect her is also super understandable, since she doesn't know he's planning on going home and dying. But Fayil isn't actually concerned in the slightest about Berylaine. Perrin's kind of creeped out because he's like, why isn't she upset? She should be jealous. And it's making him really uncomfortable and concerned. It honestly causes him more anxiety that he's not getting an explosion out of her. It's not even just not getting an explosion out of her, but she doesn't even smell jealous. Perrin doesn't understand why Fahil isn't concerned about Barrelane, and he's so clueless about some things that he wouldn't even figure it out if he thought back to a few days before, after the Bubble of Evil, while the two of them are walking down the corridor to confront Rand. Barrelane, who got to enjoy Rand's experience of the Bubble of Evil with him passes them, and Perrin bows to her and then stares after her. And Fayil accuses him of filling his eyes because he's so overwhelmed by the first fierce set that he's super distracted by it. In fact, he almost lets slip to Fayil that he can smell emotions, an ability that he never actually confesses to her, by the way. He's like, she smelled of presumably terror, panic, whatever, and it says, I do not care if she smelled of the essence of dawn, Fayil said darkly, That one is not interested in hunting a bear, however fine his hide would look stretched on a wall. She hunts the sun. He frowned at her. The sun? A bear? What are you talking about? You go on by yourself. I think I will go to my bed after all. If that's what you want, he said slowly, but I thought you were as eager to find out what happened as I am. I think not. I'll not pretend I am eager to meet the- Rand. Not after avoiding it until now, and now I am especially not eager. No doubt the two of you will have a fine talk without me, especially if there's wine. You don't make any sense, he muttered, scrubbing a hand through his hair. If you want to go to bed, then fine, but I wish you would say something I understand. For a long moment, she studied his face, then suddenly bit her lip. He thought she was trying not to laugh. Oh, Perrin, sometimes I believe it is your innocence I enjoy most of all. So, Fahil knew exactly what Berylain was up to, and I don't know if she thought that the dragon and the first had such amazing sex that that's what sent the axe flying all over the room, or whatever, but she assumes that when Perrin goes to see Rand, Rand is going to brag to him about banging Berylain. She knows Berylain's game, and so she must also intuit several days later coming in to tell Perrin, hey, I heard a rumor, and seeing Berylain in there, making sure to grope him before leaving that Berylaine sees Perrin as a consolation prize. Because at the point that the Trollocs attack, Elaine Tricand, daughter heir and future queen of Andor, has been arm-in-arm with the Lord Dragon for three days, making out in corners, and not particularly secretly. Elaine has been pretty shameless about it. And a queen's cousin like Fael can see all of the angles of the politics, understand how Berylaine is assessing it, and know that the First would see that it makes more sense for the Lord Dragon to want to have a political alliance with Andor. Beyond that, Perrin, the least secretive of all of our characters, had to have told her what actually happened in the bedchamber with Rand and Berylaine. And so, maybe she also understands that Berylaine is not interested in going after Rand because the whole experience was terrifying. Considering how Fail feels about Rand, and male channeling in general, she would find that completely relatable. Regardless, she realizes Berylaine is going to Perrin because Rand is a no-go, and Fayil can also guess that Berylaine won't be interested in Matt because, just as Berylaine herself says, he's too much like her. And while she doesn't believe that Perrin is into Berylaine, she knows that Berylaine is tenacious, and she's so pissed off, especially because Perrin throws Berylaine in her face on purpose to hurt her feelings so she'll finally fuck off. So, Fayil chases her down, and they fight, and she expects to be able to kick Berylene's ass, but her knives prove to be no match for the first Olympic-level judo game. And in the process of them fighting, before Rourke comes along and takes Fayil's knives away and is like, both of you knock it off... Berylaine, you go off to bed, and Fa'iel, you're losing your knives as forfeit. Berylaine uses the term Ogier's Oath as a promise that she's going to take Perrin away from Fail. And Fa'iel's like, thanks for the suggestion, asshole. And she determines to trick or manipulate Loyal into taking her into the ways so that there is absolutely no way that Perrin is going to get to the Two Rivers without her. And the whole thing is super shitty, and their relationship is toxic, and I am going to skip the bullshit that they go through because I can't. I just can't. This week's accompanying minisode on Patreon is a rumination about who gets the moral high ground in the end, but as far as this episode goes, suffice it to say, Fayola accompanies Perrin to the two rivers because she is very uninterested in his presumption to keep her safe. Poor Perrin. As toxic as she can be, though, in fairness, as much as their relationship makes me want to drown them both, it's an awfully believable dynamic between a 17 and a 19-year-old, but as toxic as she can be, there's a lot I like about Fail. You know, I wish her away. I'm like, Fai'il and Gowan can fuck off when I'm shipping Perrin and Egwene. But by herself, honestly, she's pretty great. And one of the reasons that I don't hate the Shido arc the way so many people do is because I like having Fail on her own. I like being in her head and seeing her be a leader and problem-solve and be away from Perrin. I'd prefer that Perrin be in a grief coma throughout books 9 and 10 so that we can see all of the rescue planning POVs from the perspectives of, say, Barrelade and Massima and the Aes and Ashamon. And Berylaine and Aleandra's generals, like Galen and um, Arganda, and the wise ones, and only get Perrin POVs once he starts to get his shit together and is, like, chopping off men's hands. And once Talonvor returns and they start making plans with the Shanshan to do the invasion of Malden, that would make Fa'iel's kidnapping arc far less irritating from the rescuer's sides. That arc on her side, though, I actually really enjoy because a Fa'iel away from Perrin doing cool things and being in charge and just being a badass is an awesome Fa'iel. A Fa'iel in a dynamic with Perrin, I like less. Though I'm trying to appreciate her more now that I'm starting to understand that she is a plot device all her own. It's not just that she's a character, she's also a device. She's the device that holds Perrin to his fate. And bouts of domestic violence aside, and, you know, back when R.J. was writing this, women hitting men just wasn't as big a deal. Even nowadays, it's not treated with as much seriousness as it should be, but it's getting better. Now, people with empathy are being like, yeah, nobody would shrug that off if a man did it to a woman, and then we're all like, yeah, it's fucked up. And that has been the evolving attitude for a good long time now. But when I was growing up in the 90s, girls would haul off and hit boys all the time, and it was perfectly acceptable. Dickish, but acceptable. Boys could expect that girls might punch them or whatever, like not necessarily in the face, but like in the arm or whatever, and you could get away with that as a woman, and nobody would really think very much of it, because it was just culturally not even considered an issue, because men were physically stronger and expected to take whatever women dished out, and good men never retaliated, and that doesn't mean that it's okay, but that's the whole point of society moving on, As you look back and you're like, wow, none of that was okay. And that's how we progress and get better. So bouts of domestic violence aside, Perrin and Fayil presumably have tender moments that RJ doesn't show us because they're just not as interesting. But Perrin cares about her and he wants her to be safe. So hearing about the White Cloaks and the Two Rivers, he enters this brutal emotional crucible where he resigns himself to death and then he hurts her and drives her away which is a double blow considering nothing is more painful to parent than hurting others. He's already emotionally in a bad place because he takes pleasure in his time with Fahil, even though he knows she should leave, and he wants her to leave. Even before the Trollocs attack, before finding out about the White Cloaks, before the bubble of evil, he feels like she should go and that's the best thing for her to do. But he doesn't actually want her to go. He loves being with her. He loves her. I mean... You know, as far as RJ is concerned, he loves her. And, you know, I fell in love with my wife pretty fast, even if it's the type of love where there is a real possibility that once you get to know the person well enough, they will end up not being who you want them to be or who you felt like they were, and then you fall out of love and break up. Or, as I mentioned earlier, stay together in an incredibly toxic situation. But I lucked out with my wife, and I just kept falling more and more and more in love because she was the person I thought she was. Anyway, Perrin wants to be with Fahil, but duty is making it so responsibly he shouldn't be with her, because she shouldn't be with him, because being around him is potentially very hazardous. And then he learns that white cloaks are looking for him, and he's resigning himself to death. And so he has to make her go away, because the situation going home is for certain very hazardous, since she's not just going to stand aside and let him be killed, as she showed when she tried to stop the axe. And then he has this moment where Gall meets him outside of Loyal's room. Perrin has gone through all of this work to drive Fagil away, only to find out that she tricked Loyal and she's going to be there anyway. And so he is despairing. And then Gaul's like, yeah, Rand asked if some of us would go with you. And Perrin gets his hopes up, thinking, oh, "'I might have Iyil with me. I might not have to die.' "'Only to have them dashed a couple hours later, when Gall tells them, it's just me, but these lands of yours are already too wet, "'and when they heard there were two rivers, nobody wanted to come.' "'It says, they have seen more than they want of strange places.' "'I understand,' Perrin said. that what he understood was that there would be no rescue after all. "'No company of Iyil to drive the White Cloaks out of the two rivers.' He kept his disappointment inside. It was sharp after thinking he had escaped his fate, but he could not say he had not prepared himself for the alternative. That's just fucking cruel. So, RJ uses dreams that Perrin has the night before leaving, like ordinary dreams, to paint in just a few haunting images everything that is weighing on him. It says, When he slept, he dreamed of mounting a gallows and Fahil watching, or worse, trying to stop it trying to fight white cloaks with their lances and swords, and he was screaming while they fitted the noose around his neck, screaming because the white cloaks were killing Fail. Sometimes she watched them hang him with a smile of angry satisfaction. Small wonder such dreams wakened him with a jerk. Once he had dreamed of wolves running out of the forest to save both Fai'il and him, only to be spitted on white cloak lances, shot down by their arrows. It had not been a restful night. Perrin, Cannot stand for people to get hurt, which is why he looks for the simplest, most logical path to safeguard others. He's like, What is the best way? What is the easiest way for me, one person, to protect other Ibaras? They're looking for a dark friend named Perrin. If I give myself up, if I give the White Cloaks what they want, they'll have no cause to harm anyone else. So Brandon Sanderson had to write Perrin's story almost from scratch. He was the character that he had very few notes for. And I think he did a really good job. He did have some unfortunate regression, and there was some stuff where I felt like it would have been better for him to just cut a bunch of it out. But overall, I feel like he did a great job with him. And I think that having the trial made sense. There's almost a feeling that Perrin has toe. He did what he had to, and like an Aiel, he ends up being prepared to pay the price without excuses and without being sorry because Perrin has moved on from bitterly regretting killing the White Cloaks. He beat himself up for a long time about his loss of control and the fact that he killed other human beings, and now he's just at the point of like, you know, it is what it is, and that doesn't mean he takes any less responsibility for it. He's not cavalier about it, and he'll pay that price if he has to pay it, but it's just not as hard on him anymore. As he Fa'iel, Farron, Thomas, Tam, and Abel are at the Alcine farm where they stop for lunch as they're making their way to Watch Hill to rescue the Cawthons and the Luhans from the White Cloak encampment. Perrin gets asked by the Alcines, Why are the White Cloaks after you? Why are they saying all this stuff about you? Why do they say that you're a dark friend? And it says, White Cloaks don't need much, Master Alcine. If you don't bow and scrape and walk wide of them, you must be a dark friend. If you don't say what they want, Think what they want? You must be a dark friend. I don't know why they think Rand and Matt are. That was the simple truth. If the White Cloaks knew Rand was the Dragon Reborn, that would be enough for them, but there was no way they could know. Matt confused him entirely. It had to be Fane's work. Myself? I killed some of them. For a wonder the gasps that rounded the room did not make him cringe inside, and neither did the thought of what he had done. They killed a friend of mine and would have killed me. I didn't see my way clear to let them. That's the short of it. I can see where you wouldn't, Jack said slowly. Even with Trollocs about, Two Rivers people were not used to killing. Some years ago, a woman had murdered her husband because she wanted another man to marry her. That was the last time anybody had died of violence in the Two Rivers that Perrin knew, until the Trollocs. Perrin is just so much more practical now. He's kind of like it had to happen. It's done. It's regrettable but done. But the parent who no longer cringes internally is a parent who has learned that his willing self-sacrifice to spare others is not needed because he's too late. It's amazing how shock and trauma can just completely relieve you of all of the fucks you might have had to give. The funny thing is that even as its parents plan to die before he learns he's too late, R.J. writes our fledgling lord's inner narrative to show the headspace of someone ready to take responsibility and be in charge. As he and his crew were traveling down the mountains into the Westwood, he's thinking about his family, and it says, Once apprenticed to Master Luhan, he had seen them only on feast days. The distance was too great for casual travel, and there had always been work to do. If the white cloaks hunted for Ibaras, they were easy to find. They were his responsibility, not this slayer. He could only do so much. Protect his family and fight That was first. Then came the village and the wolves and the Slayer last. One man could not manage everything. This is not the thinking of someone planning to die. He's prioritizing and problem-solving. He's thinking, Okay, we've got issues here. There's no wolves in the two rivers. That's troubling. This strange, cold-smelling dude Hopper called Slayer is killing them in the wolf dream. That is not Okay. There were Trollocs at the Waygate that attacked and wounded us. That's fucked up. They shouldn't be here. They had to have been there on purpose because they were getting ready to come out of the Waygate. I have to deal with this. And he's putting things mentally in order and trying to plan for them even as his current intention is, turn myself in. Which means that once he does that, there's no one else to deal with the village and the wolves and Slayer. So... People find Perrin's attachment to his family strange, or out of nowhere, because you only hear about them in this book, beyond the most vague mention that no one was at his farm when the Trollocs attacked on winter night because they were already in the village. RJ makes it a point to let us know in book one that the Trollocs attack both Perrin's family farm and the Forge, but Perrin never really thinks about his family before this book. But to me, his attachment to them is logical, and it doesn't need to be stated. There's nothing unbelievable about him being worried for or devoted to his family. You know, it's his family. He's been apprenticed to Master Luhan since he was 12, and so he doesn't see his family very much, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter to him. And so I find it totally believable that Perrin, who is the type of person who hurts when other people are hurt would feel like it was his fault if anything bad happened to his family because he killed White Cloaks. So if they came looking for him and people who are bearing the name Ibarra die while the White Cloaks are looking for him, that is the type of thing that would grieve Perrin terribly. And so I feel like it's perfectly logical and perfectly reasonable that Perrin would feel terrible about his family. And I suppose that they could have killed the loo hands, and that might have been a better choice. I don't disagree that that would have been a better choice, but RJ just really struggles to kill significant characters. The Wheel Weaves podcast, my favorite first time reader podcast, they just finished Lord of Chaos, and Danny was shocked that a major character didn't die during Dumai's Wells. She really expected it. And now they've begun Crown of Swords, and she's finally gotten a major named character dying, but the only one RJ could bear to kill was Pedro Niall. A very significant character, but not someone anybody really likes. The best that can be said of him is that he's not exactly evil, and he thinks that he's doing good. And I figure it's probably just that RJ saw way too much death, and so he really struggled to deal it out to people that he invested so much time in developing and making real. Which is understandable. And so, does that mean that Perrin's family was fridged? I don't know. But I know that you don't have to see his relationship with them, or even have him think about them to know that they matter to him. There is family. And even without blatant relationship development, RJ makes it a point before Perrin finds out that they're gone to illustrate the attachment in little ways. He shows Perrin's anxiety, like when they stop at Rand's place on their way down into the village. They get into the west wood, and rather than going straight for the road, he angles over to Rand's farm, and he finds that it's burned down, and it says, He did not even think of knocking an arrow. The fire was weeks old, the burned wood slicked and dulled by past rains. Chokevine needed nearly a month to grow that tall. It did even envelop the plow and harrow lying beside the field. Rust showed under the pale, narrow leaves. The Aiel searched carefully, though. Spears ready and eyes wary, quartering the ground and poking through the ashes. When Bane clambered out of the ruins of the house, she looked at Perrin and shook her head. At least Tam Althor had not died in there. They know. They know, Rand, You should have come. It was very nearly more than he could do to stop from putting Stepper to a gallop, keeping him there all the way to his family's farm. Trying to, at least. Even Stepper would fall dead before he ran that far. Maybe this was trollic work. If it was Trollocs, maybe his family was still working their farm, still safe. He drew a deep breath, but the char obliterated any other smell. Gall stopped beside him. Whoever did this is long gone. They killed some of the sheep and scattered the rest. Someone came later to gather the flock and drive it off north. Two men, I think, but the tracks are too old to be sure. Is there any clue who did it? Gall shook his head. It could have been Trollocs. Strange to wish for a thing like that, and foolish. The White Cloaks knew his name, and they knew Rand's as well, it seemed. They know my name. He looked at the ashes of the Althor farmhouse, and Stepper moved as the reins trembled in his hands. So, of course it would be devastating to be too late, particularly because he was willing to make an almost Christ-like sacrifice to save his family. And because he tried really hard, he left as quickly as he could, he tried as hard as he could, and... Perrin thinks it's strange to wish that Trollocs were behind the damage to Ran's farm. He doesn't make the connection that if Trollocs are behind it, then it's not my fault, because nothing I could do would stop it. So Perrin and his crew camp that night at the Althor farm, and then very early in the morning, he and Gall head into Emmonsfield alone, where he slips into the Winespring Inn and announces himself to Bran and Marin Alvere. It says, Perrin? Mistress Alfier murmured disbelievingly. "'It is you. I almost didn't know you with that beard and your cheek. Were you—is Egwene with you?' Heron touched the half healed slash across his cheek self-consciously, wishing he had cleaned up or at least left the bow and axe in the kitchen. He had not considered how his appearance might frighten them. No, this has nothing to do with her. She is safe. Safer on her way back to Tarvalan, perhaps, than if still in tear with Rand, but safe in either case.' He supposed he had to give Egwene's mother something more than that bald statement. Mistress Elvier, Egwene is studying to be Aes Sedai. Ninety-two. I know, she said quietly, touching the pocket on her apron. I have three letters from her in Taravalin. From what she writes, she sent more, and Nineve at least one, but only three of Egwene's have reached us. She tells us something of her training, which I must say sounds very hard. It is what she wants. Three letters? "'Guilt made him shrug uncomfortably. "'He had not written a letter to anyone, "'not since the notes he had left for his family and Master Luhan "'the night Moraine took him away from Emmons Field. "'Not one. "'So it seems, though not what I had envisioned for her. "'It isn't something I can tell many people about, now is it? "'She says she's made friends, anyway. "'Nice girls, by the sound of them. "'Elaine and Min. "'Do you know them? "'We've met. "'I think you could call them nice girls. "'How much had Egwene told in those letters?' Not much, evidently. Let Mistress Alfier think what she would. He had no intention of worrying her over things she could do nothing about. What was past was past. Egwene was safe enough now. And I think what he's not telling her there, what he means by what's past is past, is he's not going to tell Mistress Alfier about Egwene's time being a Shanchen captive, which I think is a reasonable decision. I think that as far as what to tell a parent about their child when it comes to... You know, your daughter was captured and held prisoner and tortured. Since she's safe now and Marin can't do anything about it and it's past, I feel like Perrin's logic there is a fair choice. And then it says, Abruptly realizing that Gall was just standing there, he made hasty introductions. Brand blinked when Gaul was named Aiel and frowned at his spears and the black veil hanging down his chest from his shufa, but his wife merely said, "'Be welcome to Emmons Field, Master Gall, and to the Winespring Inn.' "'May you always have water and shade, roof Mistress. Gall said formally, bowing to her. "'I ask leave to defend your roof and hold.' She barely hesitated before replying as if that were exactly what she was used to hearing. "'A gracious offer, but you must allow me to decide when it is needed.' "'As you say, roof Mistress, your honor is mine. From under his coat,' Gall produced a gold salt cellar, a small bowl balanced on the back of a cunningly made lion, and extended it to her. "'I offer this small guest gift to your roof.' "'Marin Alvir made over it as she would have any gift, hardly showing her shock. Perrin doubted there was a piece to equal it in the whole two rivers, certainly not in gold. "'There was little enough gold coin in the two rivers, much less gold ornaments. "'He hoped she never found out it had been looted from the Stone of Tear. "'At least he would have wagered that it had.' My boy, Bran said, perhaps I should be saying welcome home, but why did you return? I heard about the white cloaks, sir, Perrin replied simply. The mayor and his wife shared somber looks, and Bran said, Again, why did you return? You cannot stop anything, my boy, or change anything. Best that you go. If you don't have a horse, I will give you one. If you do, climb back in your saddle and ride north. I thought the white cloaks were guarding Terran Ferry. Did they give you that decoration on your face? No, it... "'Then it doesn't matter. "'If you got past them coming in, you can get past to leave. "'Their main camp is up Watch Hill, but their patrols can be anywhere. "'Do it, my boy.' "'Don't wait, Perrin,' Mistress Salvia added quietly but firmly, "'in that voice that usually ended with people doing as she said. "'Not even an hour. "'I'll make you a bundle to take with you. "'Some fresh bread and cheese. "'Some ham and roast beef. "'Pickles. "'You must go, Perrin.' "'I cannot. "'You know they are after me or you'd not want me to go.' and they had not commented on his eyes, even to ask if he was ill. Mistress Alvir had barely been surprised. They knew. If I give myself up, I can stop some of it. I can keep my family. He jumped as the hall door banged open to admit Fael, followed by Bane and Chi'ad. So, this scene is really, really fun. Partly I love seeing the guest gift ceremony done by an A'il before we see Rand attempt it many chapters later in Cold Rock's Hold. I love that R. J. does that. He'll often do cultural things from two different angles, almost as a way to amplify his pervasive themes of cultures clashing and worlds changing. It's awesome to see Gaul presenting to Two Rivers people this guest gift and this formal Aiel introduction, and then we'll see later Rand going into Colrock's hold and asking leave to come beneath Lian's roof and giving her a gift, and Lian taking gifts from everybody but refusing to take gifts from Egwene and Moraine because them being Aes Sedai is honor enough, and if they were to give her gifts, it would shame her. So, Faiel, fairly enough, calls Perrin an idiot for his ludicrous plan to give himself up, and I'm sure part of her outrage is realizing he behaved like a shit just to drive her away because he planned to die. And while she's tearing him a new asshole, we get, Perrin, Mistress Alvier said quietly, would you introduce me to this young woman who thinks so highly of you? Fagil's face went bright red when she realized she had been ignoring Master and Mistress Alvere, and she began making elaborate curtsies and offered flowery apologies Bane and Chiad did as Gull had, asking leave to defend Mistress Alvir's roof, and giving her a small golden bowl worked in leaves and an ornate silver peppermill bigger than Perrin's two fists, topped by some fanciful creature half horse, half fish. Bran Alvir stared and frowned, rubbed his head and muttered to himself. Heron caught the word Aiel more than once in an incredulous tone. The mayor kept glancing at the windows too, not wondering about more Aiel. He had been surprised to learn Gaul was Ayel. Maybe he was worried about white cloaks. Maron and Alvir, on the other hand, took it all in stride, treating Fayil and Bane and Chiad the same as any other young women travelers who came to the inn, commiserating with them over how tiring travel was, complimenting Fayil on her riding dress, dark blue silk today, and telling the Aiel women how she admired the color and sheen of their hair, Perrin suspected that Bain and had at least, did not quite know what to make of her, but in short order, with a sort of calm motherly firmness, she had all three women settled at a table with damp towels to wipe journey dust from hands and faces, sipping tea she poured from a large red-striped pot he remembered well. It might have been amusing seeing those fierce women. He certainly included Fayil, suddenly eager to assure Mistress Alvier that they were more than comfortable— was there nothing they could do to help? She was doing too much. All of them wide-eyed as children with a child's chance of resisting her. It would have been amusing if she had not included himself and Gaul, sweeping them just as firmly to the table, insisting on clean hands and clean faces before they got a cup of tea. Gaul wore a small grin the whole time. Aiel had a strange sense of humor. Surprisingly, she never glanced at his bow or axe or the Aiel's weapons. People seldom carried even a bow in the two rivers, and she always insisted such be set aside before anyone took a place at one of her tables. Always. But she just ignored them now. Another surprise came when Bran placed a silver cup of apple brandy at Perrin's elbow. Not the small tot that men usually drank at the inn, barely enough to cover the last joint of the thumb, but half full. So, there's a bunch of interesting stuff here. For one thing, Perrin returns to the Two Rivers, and you once again get the tone of, like, down-home silliness that RJ started the series with. Or, I don't know if silly is the fairest term, but like I was talking about in my first episode, the almost Hobbit-like simplicity that RJ gives to the Two Rivers folk, where they have a playfulness or sense of fun or an innocence to their culture that makes them fundamentally humorous. You want to smile— He writes their culture and their interactions with a humorousness and a lightness, and it's almost childlike. Maybe not silly. Maybe childlike is a better term. It has the aspect of the type of story that you tell to a child, and that just seems to be like their culture, and maybe that's what he does as a way to represent home and comfort to these people. Perrin comes home, Or when we first hear from Rand in the beginning, and he's going into Emmons Field, and there's this atmosphere of comfort, like a blanket, or sitting by your mom, or whatever, and so there's a childlike sense, or a childlike simplicity, so the playfulness and the humor that makes it almost Hobbit-like, that's, I think, what we're getting in the tone from the Two Rivers Folk, or that RJ is trying to give to us, is that this is home, and you can relax and be young. But he's also showing the changes. It's altering. You know, Marin would never have allowed anything remotely weapon-like in her dining room before. And she just doesn't care now. She can't care. Things have to change. Things are serious now. And Two Rivers folk are adaptable. They do what they have to do. And as stubborn as they can be, and as conservative as they often are, they accept changes if they need to. And so it's very, very interesting. I love this arc of Heron coming home. I love seeing him interacting with everyone and changing them as he has been changed, and changing more in turn, and growing into Lord Heron and being the person who brings the two rivers out into the world by bringing in a wife that is from another country and wearing a beard and making things that are different be acceptable and forcing people to be adaptable because it's adapt or die. I think part of why Perrin is so well-suited to help the Two Rivers cope with change is because he likes change so little himself, and his resistance to the responsibility and the role that his people put upon him is so very Two Rivers in its own right. And while he doesn't want to be a lord, and he will struggle with this new phase as he starts to become Lord Perrin, the wheel will do what it has to, to forge him into what it needs him to be, and what the two rivers needs him to be. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I've already recorded my rough draft for my next episode, and we'll start working on the final draft notes within the next couple of days. So, unless something goes terribly wrong, I anticipate having episode thirty-three dropped before JordanCon. How does that happen, you ask? It happens when you realize in the middle of recording the rough draft for this episode that it's way too long, and you have to split it into two. As stated, this episode's accompanying minisode will be about who has the moral high ground and the teenage spat between Perrin and Fai'il. As I haven't even edited last episode's Patreon mini so I'll just confess right now, I haven't even recorded this one yet. I'm a mess. That said, if you'd like to support the show and have access to that once I record it, or other fun content, there's a link in the show notes. There are other links to Discord, email, etc. And there's a link to my YouTube, uh, you should go and subscribe, as well as to my Twitter handle, at Pod of the Dragon. There's also a link to Apple Podcasts. If you could review my show, I'd really appreciate it. It will help other people find me, and so will word of mouth. So if you know anybody who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin MacLeod. My name is Morgan. And I sympathize with Fail's anger and frustration at a man's presumption to protect her by leaving her behind. That said, if I were Perrin, I would have introduced her to the Alvirs by saying, "'This is my ex-girlfriend.'"